Hello, good evening. Good evening, David. Pork, we have a result. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that this is a well. I think we are recording, but uh, <clears throat> well, my God, yes, that was a that was epic. <laughs> yeah, well, we're live, buddy. <laughs> okay, so good evening and welcome to the first poor podcast. Myself, David Gilmore, and. As I said on the last episode, I'm joined with Park Woolley of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, um, fellow member, uh, myself. Park, how are you this evening? Very good, very good, yes. Once we got the initial uh, <clears throat> IT issues out of the way. <laughs> uh, just, just a slight technical snafu. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, we have a lot to get through. And uh, I hope the audience at home is going to enjoy this episode. I've been looking forward to doing this all week. Um, Porik, so I think what we'll do is um, tell us just a bit about yourself, you know, your background and uh, how you got into, uh, you know, following uh, whales and dolphins and marine life in general. Yeah, I suppose um, I wasn't landlocked that alone, so I couldn't really have been born much uh, further away from the sea. Not that on a small island like Ireland you can ever be really too far from the ocean, but uh, so we moved out to Greystones from Atlone and uh, over that from Bray Head down into the sweep of Greystones. I remember that as a young three, was I? 69. My God, Greystones was a very different place back in 1969 to what it is today. Uh, it's, it's now almost a suburb of Dublin. Um, but uh, yeah, I was basically sort of a, uh, spent my formative years in the sea, under the sea, under the sea above the sea, fishing, swimming, snorkeling. Uh, and I got out of the ocean, and I suppose I grew up like a lot of people on a, on a diet of Jack Cousteau and, um, and uh, 40,000 leagues under the sea, and I had a fascination for monsters and beasts in the ocean, and that took me to becoming a, a fledgling member of this new organization, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, who are... Uh, a group of like-minded misfits who were all sort of uh, intrigued by um, by our marine megafauna, and then sort of the the bug hit me. I think once you see your first whale, uh, you're uh, you're kind of in trouble, you know. And you know that 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 happened to me. But yeah, it was just basically an interest. I was always by the sea, so I guess I had a fascination. I suppose growing up on the east coast, there was always a dearth of. Uh, uh, oh, it, it's not exactly a wash with sort of a megafauna, um, very little fish left in the uh, in the Irish Sea. But it didn't mean I wasn't always looking, you know. And it was really only, I guess, when I moved down to Cork. Well, when I was living on the East Coast, I was forever coming down to Cork because I realised that, you know, God, if there was anywhere in the country um, with all the people sea-watching, you know, Cork just had a certain grow for me. Plus, my ancestors would have come from Cork. So I found myself spending a lot of time out in Cape Clear Island in West Cork, and uh, I just felt it was my favourite place on the planet, and I've been to some fairly exotic islands and some very exotic places, but uh, Cape Cape uh, was on the top of my list. And I just spent so much time out on Cape Clear Island, up in the cliffs, watching for, watching, looking for and watching for uh, whales, that when I did finally see my first whales off the old Hedekin Sail uh, back around... 
1999. That was a life changer. I mean, I saw about 20 fin whales on my second watch ever from the old Hedekin sail. And a fin whale is the second largest whale on the planet. And I saw between 15 and 20 of them in one afternoon. Uh, and that kind of, you know, that for me was life changing. I kind of knew I was doomed from that point on, you know. Uh, and uh, just some. Something I kind of left left career behind me. Uh, sort of uh, my background was shipping, so I had that nautical background, I guess. But uh, working in a shipping office in Dublin, but then um, I ended up working in Dell Computers in Bray, and I spent a couple of years there. And uh, but you know, there was something when I was sitting on that cliff that day and saw you know potentially dozens of the second largest whale on the planet. I just knew I had to leave all that nonsense uh, behind me. That there was a uh, more important work needed to be done you know uh, and uh, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group was a fantastic if you like a uh, vehicle for me to harness my energy if you like in 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 in, in whale watching so I suppose uh, myself and a few mates uh, in the within the colleagues should I say in the IWDG kind of um kind of wrote the book a little bit on you know the potential in Ireland for whale watching and for land-based whale watching in particular because people had no idea uh, 25-30 years ago that you know you could sit up on a cliff top with a flask of tea around the sandwiches and a binoculars and potentially watch the largest creatures of the planet just pass you by and it was an absolutely uh, a wonderful experience and something i strongly recommend everybody do and it's a very different experience watching whales from land as against watching them uh, out out on a, a boat say a commercial whale watching boat you know it's just you uh, you and the whales up in the cliff top and you know you're having zero impact on them uh, and you know you're not going to get seasick and you know it's not costing you anything uh, and it's it's a real buzz it really is it's a very different experience you know r rather than just going out in a boat and letting the skipper find your whales you know uh, it's there's something more satisfying uh, about sitting up in a headland and looking for and then looking at the looking that there is a subtle distinction. Everybody loves the concept of going whale watching, but they don't necessarily love the concept of doing the searching first, doing the looking. Uh, and for 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 me and colleagues in the group, that's actually the really interesting part because uh, it's essentially a hunt, if you like. You know, it's it's no different to um, to, to going out there trying to hunt down big game, uh, but you're doing your hunting with the binoculars and a camera, you know, and it's completely yeah. non Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there'd be, you know, certain similarities there, Park. Um, you know, uh, my early exposure to, to whales and dolphins would have been when my parents would have taken me down to Kerry to see fungi. And, uh, you know, I was, I was born in the year that fungi entered into Dingle Bay and... You know, it was only really until the late 80s, early 90s that kind of fungi became a, a huge attraction. And, you know, being kids, you know, and, and being taken down, you know, it was the sole attraction for, for going down. And I suppose from there myself, then, you know, I would have always watched uh, National Geographic. And, um, you know, even as a small boy now, going up with my father on, on top of Hoth Head, you know, a boy with no sense, I would, I would look down onto the Irish Sea and said, you know, think to myself, God, is there something there? Is there going to be something massive there? So, um, you know, it, it, for me, it's always been a, 
an interest of mine and uh, I, I pursue to this day and you know in my podcast you know even when I talk about the great places of Ireland and uh, along the wide Atlantic way I don't think that there's one episode where I don't mention dolphins porpoises whales so um yeah um and it's quite funny because uh you know even when I spoke to you first you were able to tell me a little bit about myself so uh you know, any any time that I see something, I always pop it onto the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group website. So, um, can you tell me, Porik? Um, can you kind of take us back to the, the the formation of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group and the the story behind that, and then I suppose what, what the aims are of of the organisation. You know, like the the two pillars of the organisation. Yeah, the group was founded, I guess the Department of Zoology in, uh, in UCC, so the, the, the spiritual home of the I Irish Whale and Dolphin Group uh, is actually UCC. Uh, and perhaps for the first decade or so, that was a little bit of a monkey on our back, if you like, and uh, we spent the next you know, 10 years getting that monkey off our back. And uh, they kind of associate the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, but uh, you know, with being, oh yeah, you're part of UCC, aren't you? Um, but but you know, we're we're an NGO. Uh, we established, uh, we you know, um, just over thirty years ago now, in uh, 1989, 1990. Um, I probably went to my first IWD meeting. They were about a year established at that stage, um, around 1991, 19. I remember I was sitting on a dart. I I had, I, I, I had just broken up with, a, with my then girlfriend. Hi, Samantha. Uh, and um, I found myself all of a sudden with time in my hand. I was coming out from work from Dublin on the dart on a big train station. There was a little poster, an A4 poster, uh, stuck on the wall. A meeting of... Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. So I went along to that. It was in the Department of Botany in Trinity. And I went along with that and I heard the dulcet tones of a young Simon Barrow and colleagues like Ema Rogan. And um, I just loved their, their enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, I just be, became active. So that's, you know, the group's been going a long time. Um, we're a registered charity. Uh, we're uh, also a limited company, uh, which is always a good idea nowadays for registered charities. But, you know, we've a, we've a growing membership uh, we're an all-ireland ngo so uh, uh north and south and the, the core work of the group um was is and probably always will be the coordinate the coordination of two schemes one is the sighting scheme where of which i am the, the present officer have been for probably a few decades more than i should but uh, uh and my job is to uh, encourage people to report sightings like you know, like yourself who regularly report to the IWG, report sightings of cetaceans, which are whales, dolphins and porpoises, uh, and these are sightings of animals that are in open water, free swimming so we also encourage the reporting of strandings, and that might be it's generally a, a carcass washing up on a beach that's that's rotten and stinky and smelly, or it could be a, a live stranding. You know, about ninety percent of strandings are of animals that have already died at sea and have washed up dead. Or, but occasionally we have strand uh, live strandings, and they are generally of a single animal. But sometimes live stranding can be a mass stranding event, um, which has kind of been in the news a lot in the last 
week or two because of all this uh, talk about you know uh, military use of uh, of sonics and acoustics um, sonar uh, impacting on animals. So they, you know it's just what's happening out there um, with all the talk about Russia. You know it's a good explanation as to why the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group would be interested in recording dead things because of course. We've, we've documented 25 species of whales, dolphins and porpoises or cetaceans in Irish waters. And some of those we only know, uh, especially when it comes to the rarer animals like the beaked whales, the deep diving whales, we only know that they exist because of stranding records. So if you like, strandings give us uh, a more complete picture as to our cetacean di- diversity, if you, you like. Because uh, some of these animals, you know, in, in a lifetime of whale watching or whale research, you'll never see the beaked whales because, of course, they, you know, they're not supposed animals uh, that can dive down to one, two, even three, four thousand meters depth. So you're not going to see those off the Bailey Lighthouse in Dublin, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, uh, no, pork. Now, if you were to um, take a look at Ireland now and uh, you know split it into the, the four corners: east, south, west, north. Can you kind of take us through the sort of um, profile of the different cetaceans that you'll see on on each side of the coast? So, like, what what species of dolphin or whale or porpoise would be more kind of prolific in those certain areas? Yeah, well, we've twenty five species recorded. I mean, for many years that was twenty four, uh, and it was actually on the group's twenty fifth anniversary that we got our 25 species which was the arctic bowhead whale uh, was recorded at the mouth of carlingford lock remarkably and carlingford lock just up the coast there and uh, uh of between county loud and county down so that was species number 25 but we would have a very very high or rich diversity ranging from our smallest cetacean uh, the harbour porpoise which is in effect our smallest whale because I mean dolphins and porpoises are whales they're just small whales with teeth um, so a porpoise is in effect not a whole lot different to say a blue whale it's just an awful lot smaller and rather than having uh, rather than having baleen plates uh, they have they have teeth uh, but it's essentially a whale it's our smallest whale the harbour porpoise and you just mentioned Hoth Head there probably the highest densities of harbour porpoise we've ever documented have actually been in the waters of North County Dublin you know from Dunabate running down uh, past Hoth Head and uh, down towards Dorky Island that whole stretch of Dublin Bay uh, has, has got incredibly high richness and diversity uh, but big numbers of harbour porpoises and in fact one of my colleagues Dave O'Connor uh, was doing regular um, porpoise watches over especially during COVID uh, and photographed in January harbour porpoises mating uh, which is extremely rare I mean cetacean sex uh, isn't romantic and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and doesn't take very long but he actually captured that moment uh, with a certain part of the male anatomy uh, in, 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 in full blood erectile state if you like this <laughs> Um, uh, mating with a female. Yeah, 
absolutely and the capture it on, uh, on, uh, on digital is, is wonderful but you know and I'm from you know Greystones as I said at the start and you know you could you could go out a hundred times to Hothead or Brayhead uh, especially back 20-30 years ago and really what you would see almost all the time especially in good weather would be harbour porpoises but you know we, a couple of weeks ago off there off the Arkle Banks people videoed um, common dolphins occasionally we get bottlenose dolphins off the east coast Risso's dolphins and, and the whale you're most likely to see off the east coast if that's where your listeners are hanging out uh, is the, the smallest of our baleen whales uh, the, the minky whale so you've got I would say three or four species of whale and dolphin seen reasonably regularly off the Dublin coast as you go up along the north the north coast then um, you're going to see a lot more bottlenose dolphins they, they kind of dominate there as you go back down the west coast um, again bottlenose dolphins are, are the species that are the most prominent a little bit further out at sea you're going to start picking up your common dolphins your minke whales uh, last year the likes of fin whales and even a few humpback whales started to show very well off the, the Clare Galway coast um, but then once you start turning the corner then around Slayhead running along West Cork that's you know for us really that's the real gem because you know if you want to go and see whales with a certain degree of, of you know certainty if you like uh, we would always say especially from April through to about say, October even November you'd be looking at a place like West Cork and West Kerry these are really major feeding hot spots uh, for you know some of the largest creatures on the planet namely sort of humpback whales and our fin whales I mean, we, we've been doing trips there in the last couple of years say in West Cork out with the likes of Colin Barnes and Cork Whale Watch and the Holly Joe where we could, on some trips, be counting 60, 70, even more minky whales on a four-hour trip. Um, and when you get those sort of crazy numbers of minky whales, and again, the minky whale is our smallest baleen whale, but it's still up to about 30 foot long. It's still an, an impressive size animal. But uh, in amongst those, you're always likely to have a couple of humpback whales as well. And it's, it's on days like this that we remind ourselves that the whale activity and the whale potential here in places like the southwest of Ireland uh, is, you know, not just among the best in the northeast Atlantic, but is potentially peerless anywhere on, on, on the planet. And I say that as somebody who's whale watched for the last 30 years um, on most of the continents, uh, from British Columbia down to Patagonia, across to South Africa, Namibia, and then the Strait. Uh, I've kind of been there, done that on the, on the whale trail. And if you get the weather right here, uh, the whale watching potential here in Ireland uh, is absolutely world class. Of course, what we can't offer is world class weather. Uh, uh, but if, if if we could, I think uh, commercial whale watching would be a much bigger uh, sort of thing than it is at the moment. But it's certainly growing. I mean, whale, whale watching globally uh, is, is a real niche tourism product. And, and you know every year there are more and more 
entrance to the commercial whale watching market um, and, and that causes us some concern because you know 20 25 years ago there were just one or two people taking people out kind of casually you know it wasn't a big thing uh, and of course with every year now we're seeing more and more people are turning their boats towards commercial whale watching and, and that's not without con- certain conservation concerns that we would have um, but it is an amazing thing to do but it, you know again it's one of the reasons why my favourite type of whale watching is just me and my binoculars at a spotting scope sitting up on a cliff because I know I'm having no impact on whales you know Absolutely. I think, uh, Pork, there's, there's a lot there. You know, you, you've covered the uh, the sort of geographical spread of these animals and enlightened us on, on you know, how the potential for the tourism. Um, me, myself, now, I, I have been out on one or two eco-marine tours. I won't, I won't lie. Uh, you know, and I've seen the, oh, the biggest... Eco, eco, throw that in front of a tourism park. I, I get all confused. I, I don't really understand what the word eco means. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just it's a marketing thing. If, if you stick eco in front of your product, all of a sudden you're like a watcher. And I, I always love this inner monologue I have like good whale watcher versus bad whale watcher. Uh, but uh, it, yeah, e- e- eco is a term that just often leaves me a little bit dead right so just just going back to to the marine tours um i know we we know i think the general public would underestimate what we have on our shores and and these marine tours may bring people out to see whales and dolphins i got a trip out to the blaskets and you know again it's the absence of fungi it's the change of the business model and everything um do you think that these type of marine tours, even though they might be just bringing you over to the Blaskets, like, do they have the potential to disturb marine wildlife there? That's there, or you know, what what, what would be your concerns about the boats that perhaps go out to take people out to the islands and stop off to see porpoises and dolphins and, and whales? Yeah, I, I I mean, I mean, I was involved here uh, with commercial for oh, for 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 many years, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, but I always said to people, if people, if people got um, on the boat, are saying, "Well, we disturb whales," and I and I would always say, "Yeah, of course you will. You're on a boat. We're we're going to start disturbing marine wildlife as soon as the skipper puts his key into the ignition. If you got a problem with that, you better jump off the boat." You go out in a kayak, you have the potential to disturb whales. I worked with killer whales out in a place called Johnson Strait uh, in uh, British Columbia. Uh, and uh, one of the greatest causes of disturbing the resident, the northern resident population of killer whales was sea kayakers. Um, you know, go, go, oh, we're, we're quiet, we can do this. You see, kayakers used to think they could get away with murder uh, because they were on kayaks, but you know, they'd approach resting killer whales and they tapped their dorsal fin with their paddles and they used to think that was great fun, you know. Um, so, yeah, every, every boat, no matter how big, no matter how small, uh, that's going out searching for these animals, frankly, has the potential to disturb them. And of course, uh, you know, it, it differs from boat to boat to skipper but yes there will always be some disturbance yeah i think uh just just on that point porrick um i mean you look elsewhere and particularly off the coast of portugal 
off the Atlantic. Um, there's been reports of killer whales actually bumping boats and rudders on boats. And do, do you think that there's this, um, say, you know, that the killer whales or the orcas, um, you know, that they, they feel that they are disturbed and this is their way of fighting back is to, to bite these rudders and bump them and you know, interrogate boats? You've no way. You've no way of knowing because you can't ask them. Uh, I mean, it, it, this was something that came to first came to light a couple of years ago, uh, where there were uh, sailors driving us uh, motoring or, or sailing down uh, the Portuguese coast, and there were there were these sort of uh, what the sailors were saying were uh, aggressive interactions, uh, and I I don't know. Uh, my days out and I, I, I've, I've worked for Wales uh, on, on a number of projects around, you know, from to southern Patagonia. Uh, and uh, they're an amazing dolphin species, but whether they would actually attack a boat seems to me to be sort of, um, uh, yeah, perhaps over egging it just a little bit of course they could be playing uh, it could be just an in interesting interactive it could be just part of a game as far as they're concerned uh, they seem to be chewing the rudders of these boats um, going by and of course which renders the boats kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, it, you know um, yeah re renders them kind of unsafe if they, the skippers can't steer them um, but uh, yeah who knows it, but it, it may well be I mean th these are boats that weren't you know the response to whale watching these are just you know very quiet yachts sailing down and they just happen to be going into an area where there are killer whales um so i think i think it's likely the reaction to boats that are paying them too much attention but um yeah there are guidelines out there and you know it's really important if you're going out in a boat that 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 skippers respect the guidelines and you know there's a marine safety out there which makes it very clear to people how they should behave uh, with boats like reducing your speed don't cut off why not spend longer than 30 minutes with any group of whales um uh you know do you need to move out of the area travel initially at a no speed and all these things are, 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 are to protect not just the whales but also uh the, the boats and the people on the boats as well but yeah every year there's an incident somewhere around the planet be it vancouver or the states or south africa where some boat has just got too close to a whale often humpback whales and um, that was just breaching out of the water leaping out of the water of course the whale does a twist and a spiral and lands backwards on the boat not great for the whale either but definitely um every every year there are these accidents do take place and occasionally there are careful uh, when you're going out on a boat that you're with somebody who who firstly really understands the whale and knows how to maneuver around them uh, and also really respects the whales because there is the potential to disturb whales um, especially when they're up in Irish water when they're here they're here to feed and that's kind of important that if you're, we're continually going out on boats disturbing uh, their feeding cycle uh, well then you're perhaps you know you run the risk of doing them no favours um, when it comes to their needing to track down again on their migration if they're if they haven't been feeding because they you know we've been loving them to death too much you know so that is a concern they're here to do very important things and the less disturbance from from us the better absolutely now um pork i think you know what uh, just on, on the point about wales um 
when's the best time of year to see them? Because I, I always used to think that humpback whales visited the, the southwest shores maybe in the autumn into the early winter, but that there's a shift there, isn't there? Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, if we were if we were doing this podcast, of course, podcast years ago, uh, but if we were doing this podcast even 10 years ago, uh, we'd have been saying, yeah, southwest of Ireland, definitely peak season, September, October, November. That has completely changed. Uh, but something else has changed. Weather is getting considerably worse again. So I think there's two things happening here. The whales have shifted their 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 timing. Uh, so we're seeing whales, these whales that used to arrive in biggest numbers here in autumn, uh, we're now seeing that happening in late spring. So it's quite conceivable as we're now in early February now, it's quite conceivable that by the end of next month, by late March, we will start picking up our first off, our, our first blowers, probably humpback whales uh, from as late or from as early as late March. Uh, so that's a real change. Um, also, we're seeing um, well, you know, we're seeing different species turning up in, in different locations as well. So, I mean, everything is in a state of flux out there, uh, and that makes it that makes it really, really interesting as a whale watcher. You know, we never say never; always expect the unexpected. Um, but you know, 15 years ago, definitely 20 years ago, um, we would have said that the period, the months March, April, May, the waters down here in West Cork were dead there was nothing in them life was really really quiet down there and generally we i wouldn't start seeing my first whales off the old hedekin sail until towards the end of june into july that has now really changed now the months like april may june uh really can almost be a peak season here the summer gets pretty quiet here um August in particular um, seems to, for some reason, and my colleagues in the West Coast say the same, the diversity just seems to, you know, quieten down. And then we often get a second peak in the year from September, October, November. Now, the problem with that second peak, that autumn peak, it's coinciding with what we're now calling an oceanal hurricane season. So, uh, you know, our weather generally is getting wetter and wind windier. And as whale watchers, wind and Wind and rain are the two things you actually don't want. Um, but Mike said that this winter, well, you could say what winter? There hasn't been a winter this year. It's been absolutely phenomenal. Right, right since Christmas, we've had, if you look at the weather charts, we've had high pressure, high pressure all over the Atlantic. It's been absolutely phenomenal because, of course, the jet stream, which dictates our weather, has been tracking way north up towards Iceland or Greenland. Uh, and that's unusual here. Usually you'd have the jet stream hitting us on the nose or to our south, which is pulling in all that low pressure. Uh, but it's been a phenomenal couple. It's been a phenomenal winter, full stop, you know, um, which is great because it's given us plenty of opportunity to, you know, to go out with with, with, with members out onto the cliffs and do lots, lots of uh, land-based whale watching as well. But yeah, things are changing. And, uh, you know, those changes uh, are adapting to the new world that they themselves in as everything everything has changed uh, prey isn't as abundant as once um, and now they're feeding on different things you know instead of maybe feeding on sprats they're feeding on sand eels uh, and their distribution is different so of course it's the old adage where where you've got where you've got you've got predators and if the prey items are appearing earlier well then the predators are following them you know okay I mean pork uh 
you know, look, this this leads on to a very interesting uh, topic. Um, you mentioned the Gulf Stream and that it's tracking further north. Now, the only like really bitterly cold days that I remember this past winter were probably around November and Storm Barra when we had all that going on. But is this for you, is this a, a, an indicative um, trait of climate change? Yes. The fact that we're the fact that we're getting warmer winters, the fact that we have species of whales that are, are turning up later in the year, uh, you know, what what would be the effect then of these warmer winters? And do you think that the fact that the the Gulf Stream is changing course is this anything climate change related, or is this would you put it down to to it being a natural thing? Yeah, well, it, it, it was the jet stream I said, not the Gulf Stream. Of course, the, the jet stream sort of is what impacts most on our weather, and of course, the Gulf Stream is what impacts on the water. Uh, but uh, you know, when we get where our weather is ultimately determined by the jet stream, and when when that jet is tracking north, what it does is it pulls in behind it the doors high, and once that is doors high becomes established, it becomes what we call a blocking high, and of course, that blocking high can sit right over us and it has the effect of just playing along with the with, with the, the Atlantic is doing all it can these low pressure systems um, over Ireland and the blocking high is just having none of it so it's it's a wonderful thing when you've got and you'll hear the Met scientists after the main evening news talking about you know we've got a blocking high here uh, and once that becomes established it, it just gives another like we've had uh, for the last month it's been phenomenal but yeah you're right I think we've had about two days of very light grass frost down here uh, in West Cork all winter uh, uh, it, it is remarkable I'm I think the trend is quite clear. It's whatever weather a country has, whatever is your typical weather in that country, it just says what climate change is doing is it's amplifying. So if you're from a hot country, it's going to make it a degree or two hotter. If you, like Ireland, come from a, a temperate um, climate that's wet, wet and windy, it's just going to get wetter and windier. And that seems to be the trend, although this, this winter seems to be the exception to that. But it's uh, our problem is always going to be think the trend um like it is remarkable when i was working with colin on the whale watching boat down here in west cork even on a good summer we can cancel up to 40 45 percent of trips to weather uh and it's just that the sea is it's very rare to get calm seas down here um, and and so when you do get calm seas it's extremely rare you dare to days you really got to make sure that you're out but um but yeah no i i'm not sure if i've i probably haven't answered your question there but yeah, the weather is changing, and it's changing, and it, of course, it's it's the rate with which the weather is changing. That's the alarming thing, because you know, weather always changes. Um, you know, it, there's an oscillation from year to year and from decade to decade. Uh, but it, which you know, every year, almost every year, is the warmest year on, on record. I mean, that's really worrying. Something like ten of the last eleven years have been the warmest years ever recorded. I mean. Crikey, what's that telling us? You know, uh, it's uh, it's telling us that things are changing really fast. And I, I think what we need to do now that we seem, thankfully, to be coming out of the tail end of COVID, um, uh, and now maybe we can start focusing on real serious problems. Because I know we all thought COVID uh, was a real serious problem, but frankly, folks, 
relative to what's coming down the line, COVID was a walk in the park. Yeah, and um, I suppose with that, uh, you know, with COVID now, we weren't able to to meet in the pub, we weren't able to go to sports events or concerts or, you know, even go out for a meal properly with your, you know, family and friends. But I think it's called giving us a a perspective and... um, now we, we we've begun to enjoy the outdoors more. Now, certainly as a sea swimmer myself, I swim off docky, I swim off scaries, and like these places just get busier and busier. But what what would you say, Pork, would the you know with the impact of all that now of COVID have on your your sightings on the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group? Yeah, well, well, I guess when the initial restrictions came in, obviously, you know, two kilometers, well, we were all practically bound to our front and back gardens. Uh, so, but, uh, uh, but you know, really, once that lifted, say, a, a 20 kilometer range, well, that gave lots of people the potential to go out um, uh, to, 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 to visit. And what we found was, people started watching more closely and uh, lots of people reported on this that lots of people saw wildlife that they had never seen before, uh, be it in their forests, be it out in the parks, even be it, be it birds coming to feeders in their back garden. People started to take cognizance, uh, take note and record you know, a whole range of, of wildlife, both terrestrial and marine. And that was wonderful because it gave people the time and space to actually sit back and just be nature, allow that space to allow nature, you know, come into our lives. And that was wonderful. Um, so, yeah, we, we didn't particularly, uh, as a biological recording organization, if you like, we didn't particularly notice any any seismic fall off in uh, the numbers of reports we had of uh, sightings or strandings. Uh, in fact, if anything, the, the they they possibly grew during that period and it was just because people had more time on their hands you know uh, but it was time on their hands to do really interesting stuff yeah no, absolutely and i can vouch for that as well um you know whether it was a wet day windy day calm sunny day i was out there swimming uh whenever i could so um and you know i just i just find it interesting pork because um like as I mentioned, um, my first ever sighting was around your neck of the woods, uh, around 2007, in Greystones. Um, I just remember sitting on a bench that's opposite St. David's School, and I looked out, and... There was... That's my old alma mater. Well, until the nuns kicked me out, and then I... Then I... <laughs> St. Brendan's in Woodbrook in Shank Hill. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my next question is, what did you do, Pork? <laughs> at the back of the bicycle shed, and she never liked Anyway, she was a terrible old yoke. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, she was smoking in the back. And Sister Catherine then wrote a letter home year school report suggesting that my academic career might be best served elsewhere uh, frankly it was the best move ever uh, because I, I, I love St. Brendan's and Woodbrook the, the, the Christian brothers uh, had a happy that the nuns never had uh, but I used to sit in school and look out the window Sometimes see harbour porpoises off the uh, off that very stretch of coastline there, along the, uh, along the seafront and grey stones. And you know what? Thirty years later, forty years later, uh, I was only up at the weekend visiting my mother, who still lives in grey stones, and I saw harbour porpoises just in front of St David's School. So it's it's one of these places where harbour porpoises just seem to love. And the, 
even though people might think, oh, because they're always there and people, you know, the Irish Whale and Drug aren't necessarily interested in them. We are, of course. So no matter how many times you're seeing species and no matter how relatively common they are, still keep, you know, go on to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group app and report your sighting because all of these sightings are useful uh, and they're all potentially, you know, vital for converse, uh, conservation as against making them, you know, conversation pieces, you know. So 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 keep those sightings coming in. But yeah, the harbour porpoises are still there, David, off the, off the back of St. David's and Great yeah absolutely so I mean I think if I was a kid now in St. David's uh, I'd be probably you know rather than looking at the, the teacher teaching maths or Irish I'd be looking out the window daydreaming and probably having a mirage of, of what I can see out there and on top of what I'm actually seeing so um, it was but yeah that- uh, being, being second year looking out the window and all you had was the expanse of the Irish Sea. I mean, how was I supposed to focus on my theorems? It was just, it was never going to happen for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Note to self, do not go to school by the sea. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, um, Pork, like again, like yeah, I, I saw the harbour porpoises and uh, I suppose that, that's a good follow-on into, uh, you know, what the difference between a porpoise and a dolphin is because uh, you know we, we've categorized that there are whales dolphins porpoises and i would see porpoises and report to the iwdg website uh, you know i've seen two or three porpoises off the fico bats and anytime anytime you know they're visible and they're close to the swimming area just see you know hear people saying oh my god look at the dolphin and I'm like, because I'm such a nature nerd, I'm like, no, it's a porpoise. And, uh, and, I, and then I actually had this debate then with a rather kind of posh local. And uh, you're saying, well, do you know that nobody's ever uh, got close enough to distinguish whether they're dolphins or porpoises? And I'm like, man, really? I'm like, man, you do not know what you're talking about. And that's the nerd side of me now coming out because, you know, I, I, I know how to move, I know how to look. But I suppose, like, that's, you'd have to kind of pardon my kind of knowledge on that, you know, the fact that I research these things and there's other people out there like yourself and myself, you know, we're IWDG members and, you know, we, we know how to report and everything. But I suppose for the, the listener that's out there, you know, that doesn't necessarily do whale and dolphin watching and might be out casually looking you know from a beach or a swimming area and they see a fin rolling along the water it's like how, how can you uh, best advise uh, viewers how to distinguish between what a porpoise is and what a, a dolphin is and the type of behaviors that are indicative of, of each species you notice when you're reporting either through the IWDG website or through our new reporting app, we don't particularly care what you think you've seen. What we care about is the description you've provided us. So with every one of these cetaceans, there are key features. You know, you've got length, you've got the head shape, you've got the location of the dorsal fin, is it midway down? back or is it two-thirds down the back you've got the shape of the dorsal fin is it small triangular is it fall case is it tall and erect is it sickle shaped is it broad based whatever so there's lots of different features and most of the time people will see 
well, rarely will people see all of these features. But a lot of the time, people will see some of the features. So when you're reporting your sighting and you're asked what species it is, I don't particularly care what you filled in there. Uh, and then we ask whether you're definite, probable or possible. But what I'm really focusing on is the description you've offered. So features like length. Where's the dorsal fin? What shape is the dorsal fin? Uh, does it have a beak? Does it have a, a, a blunt bulbous head? Does it have a long narrow snout? All of these things are how we validate the records and validation is the key. So there's lots of organizations that have biological recording, but without that ability to validate or if you like interrogate a record, um, you're just really asking people, what do you think you saw? And of course, most people, instead of seeing a porpoise, with their oh, it's a dolphin. And every time people see a whale, the default setting will be, oh, it has to be a killer whale. Um, so, so we generally as well have a pretty good idea when people are reporting, say you mentioned, um, you know, the, the Kalini Bay there off the Vico Road, hold, you know, we, I, I, I know because I'm from there myself originally. I know that 95% even more of cetacean sightings from all of these areas are harbor porpoises. So when people continually report dolphins, we kind of know that, well, we, we're reasonably confident uh, that it's a case of mistaken identity. So a lot of the time, so, uh, people might think that, oh, what we do is we downgrade people's records that, you know, people say we've seen, uh, oh, people might tell us they've seen something like a, um, a bottlenose dolphin and we downgrade that to a, to a generic category because we can't be certain. But in a lot of cases, we actually upgrade people's sightings. So people might say, um, oh, I don't know what I saw, but I was swimming off uh, the Vico Road and I saw two little dorsal fins, uh, but it was a dolphin or a porpoise or a whale. I don't know. I don't really care, but they report to us anyway and we can go back to them and say well based on what you've told us we are 100% confident that it was such and such and that's normally going to be a harbour purpose just because we're talking about uh, the leafy suburbs of South County Dublin you know um, but, but, but that's the job of the IWDG sighting scheme and indeed stranding scheme one of the first tasks is to confirm species and we can only do that by people filling in the descriptions or giving us as much information and of course nowadays with advances in digital photography everybody out in the boat who sees something generally take a picture of us and take, take a short video clip and especially now with the new recording app we have they can actually download that clip very easily and attach it to the document so now we're having this extra uh, sort of of, uh, arm uh, tool in our, in, our, in our armory to help us confirm species and it's really 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 important because as you said most people don't really know what they're seeing most of the time so unless you validate those records well it's the old adage if you put shit into the system you're going to get shit out the other end as well so the validation um is important because what the validation does is it enables us protect the good data that we can stand over uh, and it helps us filter out uh, the data that we can't stay if, um, stand over and it's not that we we send it to, to, into a filter into a folder we press delete on it we just downgrade those records where there's not sufficient data there's not sufficient description or evidence to support what people think they might have seen the sighting still has value because you know we, it'll be a generic sighting of a dolphin or a whale it's just that we, we, we you know sometimes we can never really tell what species it is but uh, you, you will find that 
when, when people are getting into whale watching, it's when people are starting off whale watching that they start to see the most incredible things. Like, you know, you know, I, I might see killer whales once every four or five years in Irish waters. But, you know, if complete novices go out to a headland and start whale watching, they see killer whales all the time. And of course, you know what I'm getting at, they're not really seeing killer whales all the time, but but it's, it's almost wishful thinking, if you like, you know, it, it is amazing how many people, uh, especially during, say for instance, bank holiday weekends, after a good bank holiday weekend, uh, when there's lots of people by the sea, I can almost tell you when we're going to get lots of killer whale sightings. And of course, there's either one of two things happening. Either there's an inshore movement of killer whales into our inshore coastal waters that happens to coincide with bank holidays, or there's a movement of people who don't really know what they're looking at to the coast during bank holidays. And I know which one of those two scenarios I think is more likely to be. Um, but that's why the validation is, is, is critical and is at the core of what the IWDG does. Absolutely. And uh, Pork, you, we mentioned the, the killer whale. Now, my French teacher used to, um, you know, in, in even start French, now you say, that's a foe of me. You know, you think a word means something, but can you tell us about the killer whale and what a killer whale actually is or how it got its name? Yeah, well, the killer whale is a dolphin. Uh, so, if, if anything, they should be called the killer dolphin. Uh, killer whale is just a big dolphin. It, it's the largest member of the dolphin family. And the reason it's a dolphin and not a whale is because all dolphins, the key determinant of whether a cetacean is a dolphin or a porpoise is where its dorsal fin is situated. All dolphins have a centrally located dorsal fin, so it's midway along the back. All whales if they have a dorsal fin, it's two thirds along the back. It's much further down towards the tail end. Uh, so the, the the killer whale, and it's not alone, there are other species like the pilot whale. Uh, these are misnomers. So your French teacher was actually kind of correct. Um, where did the word killer whale come from? Well, it's a lot of these common names are, are kind of nonsense, but it's the old whalers used to call them whale killers because the old whalers used to notice in places like Hervey Bay in Australia, they used to notice that the killer whales would often attack migrating, if you like, right whales or migrating humpback whales. And they'd, they'd attack them and they'd ambush them in the bays. And they were called for, for centuries, they were called whale killers. And the whale killers just got, those two words got reversed. Killer whale, uh, but yeah, it is a misnomer, uh, as I said, because they are dolphins. So if you like, they're 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 just sort of a really really big dolphins that don't take too well to being kept in captivity. Um, so if you ever go to a facility where there are killer whales in captivity, please do not go in. These animals do not belong in concrete tanks for our titillation. Yeah, no, absolutely, Pork. I mean. All I have to do is point you towards Netflix and, uh, you know, Blackfish. And it's the documentary on orcas basically being held in captivity and uh, the, the treatment that they're subjected to, performing tricks to survive, basically. And um, I suppose it's easy for the, you know, your, your average tourist to go in and say, oh, I want to see orca whales, but really don't think about the actual treatment of, of these animals. Uh, you know, how did they got there in the first place, what they had to go through, um, what their daily lives are like, the fact that they're not out in the wild doing what, what's natural, you know. 
Um, no, absolutely. I, I, I take your point on that. Um, just staying on the topic of orcas, uh, pork. If, if say you want to go out onto a headland or anywhere in Ireland to actually try and see whales or orcas, give us one spot. Give, give us a champion spot in Ireland. Where, where would you recommend to go? Uh, yeah, just well, they they're assuming good weather, uh, and weather is always you know I, having been involved with commercial whale watching, you know, pe- people always ask me oh, when's the best time to go, and I'd always say, well, the best time to go is when the weather is best. So assuming you've got good weather, I mean, there are a couple of headlands that I think are are, are just world class um, and one in particular my own personal favourite is because it's the one I've spent most time whale watching from um, in a real dedicated systematic way and I'd have to say the old Hedekin Sail in West Cork uh, but then again you know colleagues of mine Andrew Malcolm and his, his wife um, and Trimble have spent 15 years doing dedicated effort, what we call it, effort or time to watch us off our head Nick Masters I'd have to say uh, off Schleyhead and the Blaskets he just sees mind-blowing stuff my own personal favourite if you were to ask me which headland would I watch from and likely see the most stuff and that's just because of the old head's geography the old head you know most headlands jut out a couple of hundred metres or maybe a kilometre the old head of Kinsale juts out three miles into the Atlantic so you, so animals tend to come really really close in uh, you know even last week we were out there with members of our new local cork group uh, and you know common dolphins say even off my local headland now Galleyhead, you know, they're generally a couple of miles out at sea, and you need a good pair of binoculars or a scope to see them properly. But at the old Hedekin Sail, they were just literally underneath us, you know. And that's kind of strange for a pelagic open water species of dolphins. So it, it just happens to be my my own favourite. But, you know, we are so fortunate here in Ireland that, um, you know, heck, um, I spent 15 years whale watching from the dart train, uh, you know, going from Greystones into Bray, you know, uh, when I was a, a student in College of Commerce at Mines or when I was working in Dublin uh, for, for, for years. I used to watch harbour porpoises, uh, you know, from the dart train, you know, and you mentioned the very spot there, the Vico Road, just before the dart goes into the tunnel there, you know, you know, three or four times a week, I, I, I'd watch porpoises. And there can't be too many, you know, city rapid transit systems on the planet where you can whale watch on a city rapid transit system. But I regularly used to record uh, and report harbour porpoises from the darts there in Kalini Bay. Absolutely amazing. Uh, you walk along Dunleary Pier to Scotsman's Bay or go up to the Bailey Lighthouse or Balscotton there in Hoth. You'd see harbour porpoises, you know, with ease almost on a daily basis. That's absolutely fantastic. As I said, there are very few places in the planet, uh, you know, where, you know, from the nation's capital, you can actually boast that. And of course, you know, as, as you move away from the Irish Sea area, you know, that diversity only grows, you know. But uh, anyway, in answer to your question, there's nothing quite like 
sitting out on a headland. And if that headland can be one of the many Atlantic promontories, and it could be as you go up the Clare coast, you've got wonderful places like the Loophead Peninsula, the Cliffs off the Key, uh, County, County Galway, not so good because it's very low lying. But then, of course, you get up into Sligo off Mullochmore, and Mayo is full of amazing headlands, and then Donegal. Uh, and then along the Antrim coast, amazing co- remote coastal headlands. And all of these have the potential to offer fantastic world-class whale watching. But you need to get the weather right. And that's really important. So you, as again, you're looking out for periods when there's high pressure, high pressure, good, low pressure, bad. Okay. It's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, any of the headlands really uh, going out into the ocean around the south coast the west coast but not, not forgetting that dublin very much underrated it's not a concrete jungle we have uh, plenty of species of, of dolphin and, and whales such as the smallest whale the porpoise out in our waters so that's you know if i want to drive a point home there's a lot more to offer uh, about dublin than you know for for uh, whale watching uh, the meets the eye there were a couple of continuous weeks there uh, where uh, Dave my colleague uh, uh, colleagues and friends uh, Connell Flanagan from the IWDG and Dave O'Connor uh, their interest switched from Hoth Head very quickly from Harbour Porpoises because there were reports from a few boats coming in that there were minky whales around and then the lads started actually picking these minky whales up from shore, uh, from you know, um, from the, the cliff out towards the Bailey Lighthouse, um, and there were a couple of watches there where they had six or seven minky whales within binocular and sp- uh, scoping range uh, fra- of the, the the path walk there on Hoth Head. That's amazing. That's a change that never happened thirty years ago. I mean, Connell Flanagan would have spent you know literally decades up on Hoth Head watching porpoises, porpoises, porpoises all the time. But now again, that's species diversity is beginning to change people are because of course people may have better optics uh but again it's about the iwdg training people upskilling people giving them the confidence themselves to go out onto a headland and spend spend a bit of time watching what i always call the greatest wildlife show on earth it really is and sitting on a headland it's free you don't get seasick you know you're watching the whales and you're having no impact on them it's wonderful but again the key is report your sightings back to us in the Irish Whale and Doffer Group and, and become involved you know, become a member, become involved we're running two courses this summer uh, down here in West Cork which are residential weekend whale watching courses and they're all about spending time with like-minded people up on the cliffs, out on boats We'll give uh, courses as well uh, during the early mornings and early afternoons. So it's a really nice combination of in-classroom lecturing as well as field trips and cliff time. So the idea is to give people over the course of a weekend um, the confidence to go out and carry out their own watches so that they can feed back as citizen scientists, feed back into our report recording schemes. Because it's these recording schemes that give us the data. Uh, and it's these this data that helps us uh, you know, put forward the argument for turning more of our water into marine protected areas so that these animals have genuine sanctuary uh, from disturbance, from be it from commercial, be it from fishing, be it even from uh, whale watching boats or the Russian military, whatever, or NATO indeed, because, uh, you know, NATO, uh, the, the NATO have probably killed an awful lot more whales and dolphins and Irish uh, and British Isles waters than the Russians ever did. Uh, 
but but again it's about data and the data underpins everything that the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group does uh, because you know you need data to support the case for conservation of these amazing animals so that they keep coming back generation after generation yeah, and I suppose like the main message is, um, you know, we, we do need to protect these species in our waters for, you know, our kids, our grandkids and their kids again. Um, just, you know, in regards to, you, you mentioned optics earlier on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of thinking, if I go to a headland now and I have the, you know, a really good uh, spotting scope and a pair of binoculars, you know, you could look out over the horizon for about five, ten minutes and say, Ugh, I'm not finding anything here. So, like, I suppose to the audience, Pork, and in order to, I suppose, help the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, for anybody that's listening and does go out whale watching, what what's the most effective way or strategy to use when actually looking out for, for whales and dolphins? Yeah, I mean, you need to look at what the variables are. The, the first variable is weather, okay? The weather in Ireland is typically rubbish six days out of every seven. So I would say in, a, in an average week, in a typical year, there's one good whale watching day. The other, the other, of the other six, three are probably atrocious. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the other three are probably marginal, mm, borderline, not great. You know, bit of sea, bit, bit of sea state, bit of swell, drizzly, uh, poor visibility. That one day where there's no swell, the sea surface is calm and you've got the air is as clear as gin. That's the day you need to be out. So we can control, you know, people say, oh, you can't control the weather. You can. You, you can just stay in and play fuzzball on those other six days. But you can, you can concentrate your watch effort, if you're flexible with your time, on that one good weather day. Optics is the other thing. Um, some people go out with not even a pair of binoculars and they wonder why they're not seeing, you know, whales or dolphins. Well, you know, if, you, if you're just going out and you're watching with the naked eye, realistically, you're, you're only going to see something that's probably within less than a kilometer range so you're kind of straight off the bat you're 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 eliminating the potential to see 99% of what's out there so you need to invest in optics uh, optics are really important realistically if you're serious about watching any wildlife you need scope a good scope uh, and you know the price of optics is not that they're getting cheaper, but there are a greater range of optics available out there, especially spotting scopes. But it needs to be a wildlife spotting scope, not the sort of a scope you'd use for watching the night sky. The optics are completely different, and in daylight conditions, they're completely useless. Uh, they're designed for watching the night sky. Um, you, you need to invest as much money in optics. Go as high-end as your budget will allow. Um, I've never met anybody, and I've put a lot of people into buying a lot of optics over many years, and I have never met anybody who came back to me 10 or 20 years later and said, oh, do you know that thousand euros I spent on that pair of binoculars? That was the greatest waste of money ever. Optics are not like buying some piece of technology that two or three years later, uh, it's wrecking your head because, you know, you're... you're your, your hard disk is malfunctioning or you're, you're out of storage. Te technology, I, I, I think the less technology we, <laughs> we have, and I'm showing my age here, I, I would kill the internet in the morning if I could. Uh, <laughs> 
generation, you're, it's just destroying our lives very, very, very quickly. Um, but optics, optics actually improve. Uh, well, they, they do, not that they improve, but don't disimprove. I bought a really good scope about 25 years ago, and I was out watching it the other day. And you know what? The optics are as good on that scope 25 years later. And that's a great thing about optics. If you look after them, they will give you wonderful results year after year and decade after decade so go as high end as you can and realistically if you're buying a pair of binoculars you know you need to be looking at spending you know you know ideally something like 200 euros up to 500 you know i know people who buy binoculars for three four grand uh you know so so spending four or five hundred euros that if you have the budget that will give you a good entry-level pair of binoculars. Now, you can go to Aldi or Lidl and buy a pair of binoculars for $29.99. Uh, and you know what? By the end of the month, you'll be throwing them out looking for a second pair. So sometimes buying really cheap is, is kind of a false economy. Uh, but the better your optics, the better able you are, A, to find cetaceans, and then when you found them, to look at them and really enjoy them. Because, you know, I can watch a, a pot of... Uh, dolphins you know you know 10 kilometers offshore i can i routinely see humpback whales 10 15 kilometers offshore bigger whales like fin whales i i i've watched them 20 even 25 kilometers and that's pushing even my optics to the very limit of the range to the point where the animals have disappeared over the, the horizon but i'm still seeing their vapor plumes those six seven eight meter vertical blows um uh, on the beyond the horizon uh but you know the, the better your optics the better a fighting chance and again the other thing is is about people watching from a local area the more you watch from a local spot the more familiar you'll become with the nuances of that spot the more familiar you'll become with the better spots depending on the tide cycle depending on the the, uh, the time of the year so i would always encourage people if you'd like to start doing regular watches pick a spot and stick with that spot of course it has to be a spot that you've access to spot that's safe uh tell people when you're going out because you know sometimes cliff tops can be dangerous places but there's a whole world of exploration out there and it's only by people taking the time out uh to to just to, to to try their hat at it that you never know wh where it'll actually uh take you but it is pe people who get into whale watching in particular are just intrigued with how fortunate we are to live in an island in the middle of the atlantic that has potentially some of the best land and boat-based whale watching uh, on offer it is truly wonderful I'd wholeheartedly agree there, Pork. Um, now, just, you know, for somebody like myself now who who go out maybe with a pair of binoculars and go out swimming and, do you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not per, per se doing a, an effort watch, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm scanning to see what's out there. So say like you do go out with your spotting scope. Well, what, what tips would you give to say, you know, where to look and how to actually scan rather than just looking randomly here, there and yonder? Would you have any advice for, for people that, you know, how they can actually scan better? Yeah, well, it, 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 people have devised their own techniques over time. Uh, 
uh, they have their own methodologies. I, 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 I just don't randomly go looking at. I mean, I, my watching tends to be fairly systematic, where I start on my right hand and I'm slowly panning the ocean, uh, putting the, the 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 horizontal line of the uh, horizon about two thirds uh, on, you know, closer to the top of my scope. And because my eyepiece is a wide angle eyepiece, I'm actually searching a large body of water at any one time, and that's just my own preference. But there are a few tips, uh, and I mean the obvious ones obviously watching the weather choosing a good site having your optics but what are the field cues you're looking at seabirds seabirds have been doing this for millions of years longer than we have they've got much better optics than we do so in particular the most useful cue if you're a novice whale watcher uh, is to keep watching what the birds are doing because in areas where you've got in particular like species like gannets or manx shearwater in up to 30 40 percent of cases when you see them especially wheeling around in an area and then occasionally diving in especially gannets they're following uh cetaceans uh, or should I say fish species that the cetaceans have driven to the surface and of course what you find then is that you've got a bait ball on the surface and it's been attacked by cetaceans or perhaps seals or other bird species auks that are hitting them from underneath and then you've got the aerial dive bombers uh, like your gannets and then you've got your likes of manx shearwaters coming in so this poor bait ball hasn't got a hope but as a whale watcher that's one of the visual cues that you're looking for you're looking looking for areas where seabirds seem to be actively feeding. You know, assuming as well that you're looking, you're going, you're doing your whale watching in calm weather, you're looking for surface disturbances that just seem, well, out of place. Uh, like, why is there white water breaking there? What's going on there? That These are areas that are worth spending a little bit of time focusing on. And if you go out and you don't see anything for 10 or 15 minutes, doesn't mean there's nothing there. Don't forget, whales spend over 90% of their lives, you know, sort of at depth. Uh, you can only see them when they're on the surface and they're only coming to the surface momentarily to, uh, for a breath. Uh, so you do have to be a little bit patient and you have to be willing to spend, I would say you need to give an area at least three good sweeps. Three good sweeps is a good indicator. And if after spending, you know, each of those sweeps might take, slow sweep might take half an hour. If after giving three sweeps of an area and you've been out there for an hour, an hour and a half, and you see nothing, well, then there's probably nothing there. Uh, and that's still valuable to us because nothing is zero and zero is still a number. Um, so it, it is important for us to know if you're doing systematic, what we say, timed or effort watches, it's just as valid to us when you're seeing when, when you're not seeing stuff as when you're seeing stuff so the whole idea of doing an effort watch is that you report your findings even if those findings are are, are zero because zero um, is still telling us when animals are absent and that's just as valid as us knowing when animals are present so uh, they're just hopefully some useful tips to people and of course you know Oh, there's lots of information on the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group website uh, on this very subject. So, you know, dip into iwd.ie or come and join us on one of our weekend whale watching courses because that's what it's all about. It's all about giving people those cues and empowering people to go out and carry out their own watches. Okay. I suppose, Park, following on from that, um, you know, you mentioned the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, IWDG.ie. Tell us about the importance of, of uh, donations and membership and, and what that brings to both the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group and its members. 
Well, I, I suppose the, the more members we have, and we, you know, there were many years when we actually didn't have a membership. You know, we like the idea of having supporters. In fact, there's a great story Sarah always tells about Brendan Price uh, during the uh, the early 1990s. He he, there was an issue with the Norwegian hunting uh, uh, minke whales. And Brendan wanted, he was probably better known as uh, his work with the Irish Seal Sanctuary. But Brendan was then, he was also a member of IWDP. So he demanded an audience as only Brendan could do with the uh, with the Norwegian ambassador. And the ambassador wasn't in any particular. There was this this hairy guy with a beard uh, and Sam out in the lobby. And he was demanding to see, um, to, to see the ambassador. So the first secretary of the embassy came out and said, sorry, and, and, and you are who? And Brendan says, I'm, I'm and you're representing who? Uh, and he said, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. And the First Secretary is writing all down and he says, and and how many members have you? And Brendan says, five and a half million. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the of Norway and uh, Brendan had an immediate audience. And of course, he was right because in, 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 in theory, um, we had no members. So everybody in the country, as far as we were concerned, was a member of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Uh, and you were a member unless you uh, unless you, uh, you you expressly asked not to be a member. So Brendan, uh, Brendan boldly declared that uh, the entire population of Ireland were members of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. That and actually get away with it, but it's a great story, you know. But he got a full, he got a full twenty-minute audience with the Norwegian ambassador and got to, uh, got to. But you know, that's the value of membership, you know. And of course, the, the more men have the greater voice you have, and it gives you a certain amount of credibility. So we are kind of uh, encouraging people to to sign up, to become members, uh, and to become actively involved. You know, when you know it's great because it's sort of subject. You know, can't enthuse people or get people up off their backsides uh, and out onto headlands and out on boats. Well, then no, no, nothing, nothing really will. But you know, a, a good, healthy, and growing membership, um, as well. You know, we, we we take our officers, take a lot of our positions are drawn from our membership. So you know, if you're young and you're you're interested in marine or you're looking for a career path, you know, you'd never know. Uh, I always say to young people, you know, are you a member? Are you a junior member? It's not that we want your money. Uh, you know, twelve viewers isn't going to make a blind bit of a difference to us but it's a great way of pushing open a door it's a great way of meeting like-minded people and we're a very broad church of people you know we could come from you know ordinary joes like me who just have a, a fascination for the ocean uh, and the megafauna in that ocean we have academics we have people who are more into welfare we have people who are more into conservation you know we have probably people um senior members of IWDG who aren't even necessarily anti-whaling you know we, we 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 are a very broad church of people who come from a whole range of backgrounds and who come at this from a whole range of 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 different angles, some academic, some not academic, you know. So it, yeah, it's a great it's a great organisation for people to be involved in, and um, yeah, so yeah, so be active, be involved. Absolutely. Um, I suppose pork, like mentioned a lot about sightings, um, but that, that's not to get away with you know the other. Um, uh, pillar of, of of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, and that's the strandings. And uh, I suppose, what does one do when they find either a porpoise, live porpoise, or a common dolphin, or something bigger on the beach, washed up but still alive? What 
or even dead for that matter what what would be like the you know the first thing somebody should do when they come across that yeah, well most things that you'll see on the beach will be dead you know walking along the beach and finding a live cetacean is actually quite rare but 10% of, of strandings are, are of actually of animals that are still alive. And, and the, the take-home message is pe- people get very, and rightly we understand, people get very um, upset. Uh, if you see a cetacean dead or alive, uh, it, it's upsetting. If you see a cetacean that's actually still alive, it's it's it, it's it's it, it, it can really um, throw people, you know, um, because, you know, here you have an animal that, that is likely to be stressed, is likely to be suffering, and it's completely out of its environment. And a, a lot of the time, you know, unless it's a really small animal, uh, and unless you've got a lot of people there, a lot of the time you're completely helpless. It's uh, There's very little you can do. And of course, the bigger those animals get the more helpless you are in the in the event of a of, of, of say even our smallest whale um you know the minky whale you know you know an average size minky whale will weigh five to six seven tons you know um there, there's you know there's nothing you can do for these animals so we've a lot of experience in 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 handling and recording strandings and as mick o'connell always said to me and he was our stranding officer for most of the last 20 years he said in most cases a live stranding is a dead animal that just hasn't died yet the process is well underway so if you can't refloat the animal or rescue the animal you know don't kick yourself that you didn't do anything to help it in most cases, these animals, the outcome, the prognosis for these animals is 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 poor. Uh, that said, you know, most of these animals are dead anyway. You know, they as probably 90 to 95 percent of strandings are of animals that have died. And, you know, in many cases, they'd have died of natural causes. See, see there's a, a bit of a default is or a narrative that, you know, whenever um, people see a dead or dying dolphin on the beach, that it's, you know, there's something nefarious has happened and that somehow you know um, there's someone responsible or some industry or some military is responsible for its death that's not always the case you know lo- lots of animals die of, of of a range of completely natural causes and strandings aren't something new i mean Pliny the Elder, uh, Pliny the Elder, back in ancient Aegean times in ancient Greece, two thousand years ago, wrote about the phenomenon uh, of, uh, of of mass strandings of dolphins on beaches on the Aegean Sea. Uh, so this is not something new. So two thousand years ago, when Pliny the Elder wrote about this, there weren't super trawlers, or there weren't you know NATO military, Russian military exercises, or there weren't the oil extraction industry uh, using. Uh, uh, you know, sonar to, to you know, to, 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 to find oil and gas reserves. So, I mean, this is a natural event uh, that has taken place since time immemorial. And it is truly one of the great mysteries, you know. But again, if, if you find a stranded cetacean dead or alive, log on to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group website or use our app. And in the same way, you'll see an option to report a sighting. You can equally click on the portal or the link where it says report a stranding. Excellent. And I think Park, um you know, the IWDG now, for me now, has kind of helped keep my interest levels up. I mean, rather than watch YouTube and stuff, I'm actually more likely to go on the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group website and see what's going on and see what's been seen and what's stranded. And uh, I just think it's a great avenue for, for enthusiasts like myself to, um, to, to keep tuned in and 
you know, to the audience out there, you know, if you're interested or even if you just want to make a donation, um, please do. They do great work, uh, you know, in the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, and it's volunteers mostly, and uh, we need to protect these species. Um, Pork, I know, I know, uh, we've been on now for well over an hour. Um, I just, just have a few questions, just small, small questions. I told you we wouldn't do it in forty minutes. Ah, oh, no way. We could be here forty minutes later, four, uh, four, four hours later, and we'd still be here talking. <laughs> um, Pork, here is a left field question for you. In my episode of the Blasket Islands and West Kerry, I mentioned about a visitor that I suspect could be in our waters. I'm not saying that they are, but it's something that's intrigued me so often down through the years. Great White Shark. Do you believe that the Great White Shark could potentially be in our ocean? Yeah, well, when you say our ocean, our ocean is the Atlantic, and there are great white sharks in the Atlantic. Yeah, there, there, yeah, there are great white sharks seen every day in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But if I was to be more specific, do you think that they could be off Irish and UK waters? Uh, do I think they could be? Yeah, of course, there, there could be anything. You know, you could see, you could see, if you look hard enough and look long enough, you could possibly see sort of unicorns and alien spaceships and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I'm not being facetious because I, I <laughs> being, but we, we, we rely on, on evidence. Uh, and thus far, there is zero evidence um, of great white sharks in Irish waters uh, or the British Isles or even our sector of the Northeast Atlantic. That said, there are areas in the Atlantic where there are loads. I mean, I, I, I know loads of places in the Atlantic where I could, where I could go. Uh, you know, there's a healthy great white population off the North African coast. That's the Atlantic. There are great whites off the Cape Verde. Even within the Mediterranean, there are great whites. Um, in fact, the highest latitude attack fatality of the great white was off the coast of Italy. Now, that was going back about 110 years, uh, but that was a confirmed great white shark attack on a woman off, um, off uh, Turin in Italy. But, uh, you know, and then you look down the east coast of the States, there's, you know, off the North Carolinas, yeah, they're healthy, and even up as far as Cape Cod, uh, where, where kind of Jaws was, the movie Jaws was centered. But, you know, you know, you'd have to go a long way out into the Atlantic, and the, uh, there's been lots Lots of tagging a great white stone, and yes, they cross the Atlantic, and then they hit something called the Mid Atlantic Ridge, which is about six, seven, eight hundred miles west of the Iron Islands. And once they hit, hit that Mid Atlantic Ridge, they they tend to track south, uh, you know, and head down towards warmer water off Portugal or North Africa. Uh, so far. There is no evidence that they've e- ever crossed the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and entered into Irish waters. Because if if they were, if they were out there in our even in our offshore waters, a they would be seen, they would be photographed, they'd be by caught on fishing boats. Fishing boats land rare sharks 
every couple of weeks, every couple of months. But you you would just have to sit down and dingle and watch the big pelagic trawlers coming in, uh, and there'd be great whites on the on the key wall. That has never happened. Uh, but but yet there's lots of other sharks being caught. So we 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 kind of as a group we we tend to rely more on the the, the hard evidence. And you know nowadays, especially big shark like great white shark, if they were there, they people would be videoing them. They'd be recording them. Uh, they'd be washing up on our beaches. They'd be by caught on boats and yet zero so so far i'm not convinced we have great white sharks but does that mean they they could never come of course they could you know there are no there are no walls out there and there are no fences out there in the oceans there's absolutely nothing to stop i mean we've seen pacific great whales that live down in the baja peninsula uh, in in the breeding grounds we've seen Pacific grey whales now coming over the top around the, the through the the polar pack ice of the north uh, of the North Atlantic uh, as those those ice caps are melting uh, we're seeing movement of Pacific whales coming back into the Atlantic where they haven't been for the last four five six hundred years uh, so who's to say that you know great great white sharks couldn't move from the east coast of the states or come up from the Mediterranean as our waters are getting warmer I mean we've plenty food there you know great whites their favorite food is big blubbery seals and the irish ask any irish fishermen and our seas have an abundance of both harbor and uh, and 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 uh, atlantic gray seals so there's absolutely no issue with there not being sufficient food for them still think our water is probably a little bit chilly for them but that could change yeah and i suppose like if, if pork i mean my my input in, into all this is I mean, we are a small country. Um, we don't have the land mass such as like the East Coast of America or South Africa or Australia. Um, they are as far up as the Bay of Biscay, the Atlantic, uh, the Southern Atlantic, the Mediterranean. Um, they are lambda-day sharks. Our water temperatures can go up to about 17 degrees in the summer, 17, even 18 degrees or 19. Um, they can raise their body temperature. There's plenty of food there. You've got seals, you got porpoises, you got tuna. Um, so again, it's just one of those things I'm like, hmm, scientific evidence points that the conditions are there, but they haven't been seen. So... And then their cousins, their smaller cousins are here, the, the Mako sharks, the poor beagles. Um, you know, just, just, you know, it's always intrigued me. But well, I, mean, I think there's been more people out there. Uh, like down here, it's, it's big business down here. You know, uh, the, the the blue shark fishing place like Kinsale, uh, it was it was kind of the bread and butter for for boatmen uh, for decades was going out fishing for sharks. You know, in particular blue sharks. Uh, I mean, we we regularly see uh, you know the like the the Irish Air Corps if they're flying over um, sort of our Atlantic waters and uh, you could have a carcass of a whale and the the, the Casa plane swoops down out of the sky guys and uh, they they open up the window and they they drill lots of pictures of uh and they take these amazing pictures of huge aggregations of of, of blue blue sharks uh feeding on the carcasses of whales uh, and so that's the sort of thing you're looking for you're looking for these sort of big feeding events uh and because in other countries you know you'd, you'd have your likes of your your tiger and your your great whites turning up at these feeding opportunities but at the moment i'm afraid it's all kind of wishful thinking but you know that could change could I very much could 
Um, I suppose last question, Pork, and uh, I know because we're both probably getting tired, uh, but uh, Irish Whale and Dolphin Group would have, you know, started off uh, with whales, dolphins, porpoises. I suppose in the last kind of 15 years, perhaps we've we've seen other species uh, outside of, of those three uh, being reported on the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group website. In particular, basking shark, and then other rare species of different types of animals. Can you can you take us through where the Irish whale and dolphin group might kind of fit into that niche? Certainly, cetaceans or porpoises, dolphins, and whales are our bread and butter. We we kind of brought uh, basking sharks into the fray simply because they were marine megafauna, and there was nobody else doing it. And our, our recording network, with our our network of coastal sea watchers, lended itself very nicely to the recording of basking sharks. Um, but you know, there are people who kind of you know see a seal and they report it to us. Like I mean, you know, we'd have to employ a, a, a secretariat of dozens if we were to start logging every seal sighting. You know, so we we don't do seals. Now you might argue that we do rare rare pinnipeds. So you know, for so for instance, I got personally uh, quite intrigued and involved in the whole walrus story here last year. Uh, this is the famous walrus that turned up off Valencia Island and then tracked all the way down to Bilbao and on there in Spain and then came back up again, uh, visited West Cork and Kerry, and then was last seen off Iceland, you know. Amazing, you know, a round trip of thousands of kilometers. So these these are extra limital vagrants, as you if you like. And um, again, our, our network is, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're, it's not that we're taking on more, but, you know, sometimes the IWDG is the best because we have the network, we have the recording tools, but, you know, and, and because... It is noteworthy. It's it is interest, and you know, um, uh, and these sightings are important. But uh, you know, our bread and butter, as as you know, is as the name suggests, whales, whales and dolphins. There's plenty of activity in limiting ourselves to cetaceans uh, to keep us out of to keep us out of trouble. Okay, I suppose again, my message to the audience that be listening is, if you if you do see something that's unusual and outside whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Do report it because uh, you know, you know. I suppose for enthusiasts like ourselves, you know, we want to be reporting what we see out there. That's that might be a bit unusual outside of a seal, but um, absolutely, I think that's uh, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group now is a great channel, or you know, to kind of pursue your interests in marine mammals around Ireland. Pork, uh, thanks a million for your time this evening um that was so much information but i've really enjoyed sitting down with you um to, to, to do this podcast it's my first discussionary topic on my podcast and so happy to have you on i'd be delighted to have you back um at some point in the future um i suppose just before we sign off is there any other kind of messages that you want to um to give our audience before we sign off uh, just you know, take 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 an interest in the world around you. You know, uh, everything is changing, and as citizen scientists, it's uh, we are you know the custodians of the environment, and it's 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 up to us, you know, to uh, by recording 
what we're seeing and by monitoring and it doesn't matter if it's birds become involved in recording schemes because you know these animals are indicators of change and as i said uh, you know we we've all stopped thinking about the environment for the last two years all been focused on a smaller uh, species of a virus uh, that that's that's that that's kind of changed our lives. Um, but that virus, I think, has kind of done us a, a few favors. It's it, it's kind of shown that we can adapt. It's shown that we can change. Uh, but I, I I think the change that uh, um, that climate change is going to make us make in our daily lives uh, I think those changes are going to make what we've just come through uh, I, they're going to make it look like a walk in the park but re recording the wild animals and you know the birds and the insects and the critters around us uh, right up to the largest marine mammals uh, is really really important because it's it, biodiversity is a key indicator of just how much uh, change is happening around us and we always think of animals as being somehow exotic and in other places but you know there's always wildlife around us and there's always some organization like the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group really interested in what you're seeing. I couldn't agree any further Porrick. Okay well Porrick again thanks a million for all your time this evening. Um, that's it for this episode of the First Port Podcast. I hope to be back with uh, further episodes on the Wild Atlantic Way and uh, perhaps have some more discussionary topics in the coming weeks. But uh, thank you all for joining and stay safe and ihiwa.